Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 106. This week's episode, Gen Con Review Apalooza. We like to thank Cool Stuff Inc. for their recent contest and all of our great listeners who entered. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we're back from Gen Con 2016. Anthony, we did it. We did it. It's true. We survived. (laughs) We found a hotel. Pretty good hotel, actually. Ah, yes. Very, very good. We did not have to track miles and miles away from a little tiny hotel that was previously called the Bates Motel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was creepy just because the only time we saw it, it was night. But <laughs> like right on the lake there, it was like low and dark and the doors weren't always locked. And apparently <laughs> they gave out key cards to anybody who asked for them. Oh, man. Not to mention the fact that it had that pool that was always closed and kind of creepy and... Flying Frog Games was with us the entire time. So it was like, hey, what are you guys doing here? I don't know. What are you guys doing here? Like, I don't know. Sounds like there should be like really scary background music this entire time. (laughs) Oh, man. But that was last year. This year we had a very pleasant, seemingly new hotel that was only like, I don't know, five, six blocks away from the con. Mm -hmm. So if it was possible to do that on purpose again, I would say we should. But we all know the crapshoot it is to get a a hotel over there so we stayed at the hilton home suites too it was an expansion from the major hilton hotel right across the street and it had a little sweet kind of situation to it with an actual dishwasher and plates and knives and forks but there was a good number of gamers there and they were very attentive and if you're looking for a hotel in that area i would recommend going back there that being said with that whole type of lottery system with gen con it was a nightmare we couldn't get a hotel originally and i just kind of you know grinded away at it and eventually was able to land something 
But as we said, last year was kind of a really hit-and-miss situation. We ended up way out in the boondocks. This year we were close, which was great because we had access to Gen Con almost all the time and pretty much 24-7 with the hotels around the area. Yeah, it was great. We could stay out late and not feel like we were going to hurt ourselves the next day. So much nicer. Definitely. And we had access to the city market and all the great food. And we ate at Three Carrots, which was amazing. And it was really nice to be in the real kind of crux of the action the entire time. And it was a, it was a great time. Plus, and this is probably the most important part, we could walk back and put our games away in between <laughs> really long sessions in the event, in the exhibit hall. So that was good. Unlike last year where people like were hurting themselves, physically hurting themselves, carrying games around. <laughs> it's true. It was, it was quite a, a slog. Plus the fact if you wanted to bring games to the convention or to the local areas, you really had to carry things back and forth, and it was it was getting problematic really, really quickly. But that being said, it was an outstanding time. It seemed bigger than ever as far as you could kind of take in from the atmosphere. And yet at the same time with them ex- you know, expanding to Lucas Oil Stadium, it didn't feel that crowded. It really felt active. It, it felt energetic. There was a good vibe to everything that was going on. Everybody seemed happy, the exhibitors, the participants the gamers everyone was really kind of excited about it but at no time unlike last year did i personally feel like i was getting crowded and losing my way amongst the the waves and waves of crowds yeah yeah whether it's experience which it easily could be because this is now our fourth or fifth con or just the fact that they managed to find more space which they definitely did do like there was a whole other section they opened up by moving the, the event halls around a little bit but yeah like saturday was easy breezy it wasn't even too crowded i feel like the most crowded time was sunday which was kind of odd um probably just because the pass was actually affordable that day Mm. uh but there was a fair number of people there on the last day of the con it was pretty packed but but even then it was still like you could still get from point a to point b which honestly yeah i agree with you last year it was walking across the whole hall if you needed to for some reason good luck yeah there was definitely some lanes where you could actually walk this time Unlike last year, where if you got into a lane, you were stuck in that lane for quite some time. And we lost touch with our, even our little group oftentimes. If it wasn't for Daniel's big floppy hat, <laughs> yeah, we would have lost him completely. Anthony, talk about the, the numbers for the con. Uh, yeah, so I know that in terms of total attendance, we were people kept asking us and we kept asking other people. It's kind of a thing, I guess, you do when you go. But uh, it was pretty much the same as last year. I think it was down just a tiny, tiny bit. But the turnstile, the total turnstile, the number of total attendees across all four days was up, which basically means same number of people, slightly less, came overall, you know, I think 60,000 and some change. But those people stayed longer. Sure. Now, why did they stay longer? Because it was the best four days in gaming or because it was 75 bucks a day if you only came for one day? Who knows? Getting kind of pricey. So I, I don't know what actually impacts that the most, if it's pure economics or the fact that people actually want to hang around a little bit longer. But, I mean, it felt even across all four days. Every day we were in those halls, and it didn't feel like any one day was less crowded or more crowded, except Sunday, but that makes sense because that's the family day pass. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh definitely felt roughly the same as last year with a little bit more space to move around. I don't know if they can grow, like, where were people going to sleep? Sure. You could jam more stuff into that hall, but where are you going to jam more people into that city? I think that's the big question right now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, according to their official press release, there was over over 500 exhibitors. And as we said, they expanded to Lucas Oil Stadium. They had a record turnstile. They had 201,852 attendees, which is up 2.5% from last year's 2015 attendance. Unique attendance remained nearly flat, ending at 60,819 with unique four-day passes increasing 4% over last year. But as Anthony said, that was pure economics. The four-day pass was affordable, whereas the one-day pass was not. And even as we walked around, people were saying to us they would like to go, but they didn't want to drop $75 on a one-day convention, which you know makes sense, especially if you're not a hardcore gamer. That seems a little odd. And maybe it kept out some people, with the exception of that Sunday, which definitely perked up as far as numbers were concerned. Because we were walking around, and you really felt the kind of crowding happening that day. That being said, their pre-show trade day was sold out. They had 550 participants. And Gen Con's official charity partner, which we also sent out on Facebook, the Poor House received more than $35,000 in donations, including a large donation from Mayfair Games, which is great. And uh, next year's convention is August 17th to the 20th. So that should be nice, especially since it's going to be their 50th convention so you know there's going to be some special things around that but we went to true dungeon what'd you think about that anthony last year i was thinking oh gen con true dungeon that's the big thing you gotta do right and then it was super sold out yes super fast this year because they moved it to the football stadium apparently they were able to increase the number of sessions dramatically there was even an ad in the program that said it's not sold out you can still get in so (laughs) um i i booked those tickets pretty early on because i didn't know that but it was good because we got in early. We went early on Thursday. Um, we did the puzzle session. Um, we only did the one, but uh, it was a very interesting experience. Now, we were the only two people in our group who had not done it before, which was very evident by the wall of advice these people were giving us and kind of the the jostling for position to complete the various tasks in each of the rooms because everybody wanted to be that guy. Um, and we were just like, cool, like just absorb and, you know, see what's going on. But I mean, the actual experience is very cool. The production values are very high. The the puzzles were great. Some of them were very clever. People who actually run that event, you know, kudos to them because they have to manage all these things. And there's timers, extremely strict timers on everything. Uh, make sure everybody knows what they need to do. I did not know anything about these tokens beforehand. I didn't even know that there was a market for them that were valuable. I didn't know they existed uh, until we sat down and had to build our characters. So that was a fun thing to figure out. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, overall, it was very entertaining. I think next time we do it, it'll be a lot easier going in because we'll know what all these things are, you know, have a chance to kind of prepare for it. Um, going in blind, though, I don't really know that there's a better way to do that. Maybe if you have a bigger group of people uh, that are your friends and not just playing with a bunch of strangers, um, who are all great people, by the way. It's just we didn't know them and they knew how to play and we did not. So sure. kind of a different experience. Yeah, and as you said, everybody really wants to take as much of a part of the game as possible so you kind of get the choice of a character you kind of get these tokens and you place them on a sheet so it kind of sets up your stats and then when you go through each of these different rooms it's kind of a little bit of a labyrinth and you have to solve these puzzles in order to go to the next room otherwise you take damage but just like any true dungeon crawl there's your typical munchkin who's running off by himself kind of grabbing the loot for himself or herself And then other people who are alpha gaming the game 
to an extent that I've never seen in a board game before. <laughs> <laughs> was that guy holding like five ropes? Oh my like, god! <laughs> I don't know why he was doing that. I was just like, oh man, we're all here to play. And but I would highly recommend checking it out. It was worth the money, even though it is a you know high price point. It was a lot of fun to do. The production values, as Anthony said, were outstanding and surprisingly high. But if you can, if there's any way possible, try to bring a group with you. I think you'll get a lot more out of it than going in with strangers because, as Anthony says, if they know how to play or they don't know how to play, everyone's doing their own thing and they're not really getting a kind of team type of experience. Yeah, for sure. And it's they put 10 people in these groups, which I think is way too many. I think way six, too much. Like eight would be tough but doable i think six would be a good number but if you know everybody or at least a lot of those people it would probably make it a lot easier you could at least you know the group dynamic going in um hanging out with you know seven eight nine strangers makes it a little tougher especially if they're veterans who do it a lot but that said the actual dungeon part very cool yeah i would say doing the puzzle version of this was what really we wanted to do although the last encounter did not have a puzzle version to it, which I think they mentioned that they had to do a switchover because it really wasn't working well. So a lot of our prep work at the very beginning didn't come into play at the very end, which was disappointing. So it became a lot of um, activity-based. And a lot of the stats that you build in the beginning of the game really don't come into play in a puzzle model because... Puzzles really don't matter if you are, you know, your fireball does plus two damage in a puzzle situation. So overall, really a lot of fun. Like I said, definitely recommend going back. And now that we have some chits, we'll probably go back again and upgrade our characters. Yeah. Yeah, because now we actually have those things. We know what they're for. <laughs> I don't have to borrow them from some guy who's going to hunt me down if I don't give them back. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of fun. Check out our Facebook you know, posts on that, you can see our characters built up. I had a wizard and you had a paladin? Yes. Yes, I was one of the only two healers because nobody wanted to play cleric. <laughs> so, which nobody was happy about, but since we weren't doing combat, it didn't really matter. Yeah, not too much. We were cool as far as that was concerned. Just real quick, a couple shout-outs to some of the the events we went to. Jamie Stegmeyer had his Stonemeyer game nights again. He had his room in the hotel across the street, which is a great room. By the way, like him getting it again was very smart because it's like this wraparound of windows in this tiny room away from the convention center. So it's quiet and you can play and it's not just this chaos around you. But we went to the Stonemeyer game nights a couple different nights, actually. Got a chance to meet a few different people, play some games. Not something we really got to do much last year because we had to travel so far to get back to the hotel. So that was really a lot of fun. Also did the Nerd Nights charity auction again. We did this last year. We did it again this year uh, at the Grand central uh, ballroom which is two blocks from the convention center great great old converted uh, train station um, with the ballroom and the board game geek donated money so there was lights this year so we could see what we were doing <laughs> which was nice yeah and that was a great auction they raised a bunch of money for the charity a lot of games donated from a lot of different companies including a signed copy of seafall um, rob davio was there to help give that away or auction it off i should say and i, I can't remember the number they pulled in on that four hundred dollars maybe sure so that was a lot of fun we hung out at the dice tower booth for our hour on thursday which is great got to meet a you know a handful of fans there um interact with the whole dice tower crew as well um they doubled their booth size this year which was pretty awesome so got to see actually got to stand there 
not necessarily have to sell things with them, um, but also had enough space to look around and see what they had to offer. Also got together with them for the Dice Tower Network dinner on Saturday for spaghetti at like 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> which was great. Sure. We got there at 8, but with 25 people, it took a while for us to get our food, So, which is kind of the experience. You should expect that if you're going to eat dinner at normal dinner times at any of these cons, especially Gen Con, you'll be eating pretty late. It was, it was really funny that no matter where you went for food, and especially when we went to, I guess it was the Spaghetti Factory, you see all the different companies kind of walking by because you, you notice them from their shirts. And we, we were talking about Fantasy Flight or something, and there's like some Fantasy Flight people. And all. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just like walking by, and we're just like, someone was bashing one of their games. And they're like, oh, no offense, guys. No offense. He was like, bashing like three of their games. Yes. <laughs> it was like, I played this. It was crap. I played this. It was no good. I played this. It was really underwhelming. He's like... No offense, guys. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that was pretty cool. So getting to go out and actually just hang out and eat dinner with everybody, not necessarily just be working. So it was pretty fun. But, yeah, I mean, overall, I feel like this year we had much more of a plan, an action plan. So it wasn't just goggled, you know, googly eyes walking around being like, ah, Gen Con. It was, all right, we're going to play some games. We're going to go meet some people. We're going to make sure we actually eat meals and get some sleep. <laughs> it worked out pretty well. So what would you say as far as your top event or game or situation or thing you saw at Gen Con? Yeah, I mean, I think the coolest thing for me was uh, actually getting to, you know, participate and engage with people, um, you know, from the press side because we're a little more organized this year. So we went to the Fantasy Flight uh, Flight Report, and it was not the most exciting batch of announcements but we did get to you know we got in we got to engage with them we got to meet some of the fantasy flight crew i live tweeted it which was actually very exciting for me it's the second time we've live tweeted an event from a con so <laughs> and to be fair the last time was about a fantasy flight guy anyway so yeah that's true oh we should have told them that story that been yes great. you guys weren't there but this guy <laughs> so that was a lot of fun and then uh, kind of getting to engage with everybody after that and ask them what they thought was pretty cool so that kind of stuff that's that's the fun thing for me is getting to go and kind of engage and see the new things and ask questions and get to share that with everybody out there you know via the social channels and everything so yeah that was definitely up there for me yeah for me the charity auction was my favorite for a couple of reasons it had the best atmosphere for gaming. People were really engaged. There was a lot of different people there. There was reviewers. There's people from different podcasts and, uh, you know, publications. But there was also a lot of different companies, just a lot of different gamers all sitting down at tables. So you got to participate in an activity. And yet the tables were big and round. And as Anthony said, good lighting. So you could actually play games there but not miss out on the action and the auctions were a lot of fun. So I was up there auctioning, you know, kind of raising prices and unfortunately still not winning. But since it's an auction for charity, I still felt really good about that. So that was a lot of fun. And then they had a lot of giveaways and they had a lot of raffles, which were fun. And it just had a great atmosphere. And our friend JR really did a great job. And we're always, always glad to help participate in that. And that was really my kind of takeaway moment from the event. And if, if I'm going back again next year, that's definitely one of the things I'm going to see. Oh, definitely. And it was cool, too, to see it so full. Because I know last year we went to this, and I think it was the first time they'd done it. And eventually, I think the room filled up. But it, you know, it took a little bit of time. This year, we got there like 30 minutes after they opened. 
opened up and it was already packed. So we, yeah. you know, we sat with some other people at a different table. It was just so cool to see that many people kind of jammed in there. Now, we're going to get this question, so might as well answer it right off the bat. Do you feel like or did you see a game or did you see a game often enough that you felt like that was the game of the con, whether or not it was actually coming out at Gen Con? Yes. So people ask me this, and I, I guess they're always surprised when I answer them, but I think the game of the con was Scythe. Okay. I saw that game pretty much anywhere we went that had the space for people to play it. It was being played. They were selling it at Cephala Fair booth. So that's Isaac Childress, who is Gloomhaven's coming out in a couple months, and everybody's very excited about that, but he doesn't have it here. So he was selling games on behalf of Jamie, who didn't have a booth. But people were playing that everywhere, and we didn't really get a chance to sit in and play it. We both backed it on Kickstarter, so we already had copies. But um, So it did, felt didn't feel like that hotness of hot, like the game just came out at Gen Con, except it did for anybody who didn't back it. So that one was definitely everywhere. And there were certainly a lot of games other people were talking about. Captain Sonar got a lot of talk, but I didn't see it getting played nearly as much. Yeah, I would agree. Scythe was everywhere, and it was surprising that since... So many people backed it was at $1.8 million in backing that there was so many people at Gen Con walking around with it, whether or not they either brought it their copy with them to play or they were picking up there. Scythe was everywhere and not just around Stegmire. It was just literally everywhere through the convention. And I didn't see another game that had that type of integration or impact or penetration into mm-hmm. the kind of marketplace. People were carrying that game everywhere and it was, it was really great to see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, I think the only other game I saw getting played that much was Star Trek Panic, of all things. Yes, you're right. I did see that game played a lot, you know, around the place, too. Fireside Games. Really a a nice job there. And once again, if you haven't checked out our Facebook page, please do. Whether or not you're a Facebook person or not, we posted a tremendous number of pictures out there. And there was a lot of spectacle. There was a lot of great things to see. Um, For example, the Upper Deck booth where they had everything from... I'm totally blank on the name now. Big Tokyo. Trouble in Little China. Oh, Big Trouble in Little China with the, the truck and all the costumes and everything. Just a lot of great things to see. And so please go check out that. <clears throat> go check out our Facebook page because you're going to see stuff that you're not seeing anywhere else. A lot of the new releases, a lot of the games that haven't even hit the market yet but had some either miniatures or some demo displays up there. All the pictures are there. Check out the Facebook page. You're going to be blown away by everything that we saw. Yeah, and hit up the blog, too. I, I wrote kind of a, a recap of all the stuff that was kind of most interesting, the highlights of the show. So you can kind of get some a high-level sense there and then kind of some links into the Facebook posts and the Twitter posts where we kind of showed more of those pictures and details. Yeah. So Gen Con, once again, did an outstanding job. Highly recommend going there. A little bit light on the heavy Euro games, which is a little disappointing this year. But nonetheless, it was big. It was dramatic <laughs> as far as everything that you got to see. Everyone seemed happy and engaged. It seemed a lot better than last year. And we had a great time. So hopefully Gen Con 2017 will be a future trip for you. And hopefully we'll get to see you there. Shout it from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. All right, Anthony. We started the show by talking about Cool Stuff, Inc.'s outstanding contest for a $1,000 shopping spree and $50 from us. So don't keep us waiting any longer. Who was our winner? All right. So first off, thank you, everybody who entered this contest. We had uh, 
nearly 200 plus entries this year, um, possibly more even than last year. And that's with less podcasts getting out there, which is fantastic. So thank you, everybody who entered the contest. As Chris said, we got 50 bucks from Dice Tower and Cool Stuff Inc. That's going to go to our winner. That winner is going to be entered into the Dice Tower Network pool to win $1,000. And you have a much better chance in that pool because I think you're only going up against maybe 20 plus other people instead of the 200 plus people in our pool. Again, thank you so much for all of your insights. We had a survey. We got a lot of great information about the kind of content you guys are interested in, about the kind of games that you're playing and like want to hear more about, about how long you've been playing and all those things that are really important to you as listeners we love that stuff. We took it last year and we used a lot of it to kind of help us grow the show and the you know the materials that we're putting out there. And there is more content coming in the form of blog posts and YouTube videos. Um, if you've been to the blog recently, you'll see I've been putting up a lot more reviews. A lot of the games that we saw and picked up at Gen Con being covered there. Um, YouTube is going to be a lot more active soon too. So that feedback was very much appreciated. But all of that aside, the thing you're very interested in, especially if you enter this contest, is who won so our winner for the 2016 Dice Tower Network Cool Stuff Inc. contest is Paul Panic. So Paul, thank you so much, um, and as well as everybody else, thank you for entering. Paul's going to get a $50 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc., uh, and he's going to be entered into that $1,000 drawing, which Tom is going to be doing on Board Game Breakfast here in the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't know the exact date. He wasn't sure yet either, but it's going to be the first or second uh, episode of September. He's going to be doing that. So make sure you tune in. Um, root for our guy, Paul, as the representative of Board Gamers Anonymous in the big $1,000 drawing. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion. All right, so you heard about all the fun that we had at Gen Con 2016, but that's not it. There's still a lot of games that have yet to hit our table that are really rising our acquisition disorder, and we wanted to let you know about them. So, Anthony, why don't you start us off? Okay, so we brought home so many games from this convention, like far more than I expected slash prepared for slash probably should have. Um, but that said, <laughs> there are a lot of games that we picked up that either I've barely gotten a chance to look at or have not yet gotten to play. So they're still very much at the top of the acquisition disorder list. For me, the game at the very top of that list, which is currently sitting very close to my table and will get as soon as I can get four people who are interested, which should not be too hard, Cry Havoc. This is the Portal game, uh, game's release that sold out at the show. I had a pre-order in, so I picked it up there. It is extremely asymmetrical. Kind of having run through it a little bit the first time through, I can see that it's going to take a lot more teaching from my end to make sure everybody's kind of in a good place and feels comfortable playing it and knows their role with each of the, the different uh, races that you can play here. So... Have not gotten a chance to play this properly yet, but it's very much at the top of my list because it's got everything that I love in a game. Uh, asymmetrical player powers, the area control that works without being overly aggressive slash mean slash punishing. Um, lots of different uh, variety because of the different card powers you can play. Just so much going on here. And the combat system is extremely unique and interesting. Uh, it's not straight-up combat. It's allocation to different possible objectives, whether it's controlling the point, 
capturing units or hurting the other player through attrition. Have, I, I know how to play. I feel like I could teach it. I just want to be a little more comfortable with it before I do. So this is definitely at the top of my list. And of all the games I brought home, the one I'm most excited to still play that I have not yet played. So are we at the point where it's going to get a Blood Rage treatment, where we're going to have to start doing Cry Havoc? <laughs> yeah. The, every time I brought it up at the game group, someone from some corner of the room would be like, let loose the dogs of war. <laughs> <laughs> but they would never say it like excitedly. They would just kind of like half-heartedly be like, is, I think this is I think this is what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> yeah. and they're like, I'm a little embarrassed. Like, no, no, you're the fifth person to say it. Clearly, it's the right thing to say. Well, the cool kids are doing it, so you, you might as well jump on board. So that makes sense. Yeah. All right, so one of the games that has got my acquisition to start up, and primarily because they had so limited numbers at Origins, was Guilds of London. Now, this is a light to medium weight Euro game that's all about area control. And the idea is that you're sending out your people to control different areas. And by controlling those areas, you'll get a bonus. And there's a secondary bonus for someone who comes in second because, as I said, it's an area control game. And, you know, it's a little bit, you know, fighting back and forth as far as who has the majority in that area. Now, what's interesting about this game is it's a completely module game. So you're going to have a basic setup of cards in the middle of the table and then once those cards slash tiles are set up it's going to expand from there now the actual cards that you'll get in your hand are very interesting because they have a lot of different possibilities how they play so for example there'll be an actual guild on the card that's marked with a banner and by playing that card you can place your person into that area so there's one thing the second thing is you can actually pay the cost of the card, which on the top left has a gold cost. And how do you get gold, you ask? Well, it turns out the other side of the card is actually one gold. So you can actually use the cards as currency. So think kind of like Race for the Galaxy type of mechanic where the cards do a number of different things. So if you pay other cards, you can use that card's ability, which is great because those things are very powerful in the game and based upon certain conditions on that card and the board conditions that are there, you'll be able to score additional points, flip over additional areas and even go to the plantation area, which will score you additional points. Now this game is a little kind of tactical kind of take that as far as you're jockeying for different positions on this board, but you also have end game scoring situations which you can kind of head towards or build towards as the game goes on. I was really interested in this game. I heard a lot of good things about it. It does have a serious learning curve to it. As I mentioned before, think about Race for the Galaxy, where the iconography is everywhere and it's heavy and you have to refer back to the rulebook in order to figure out what does what. Well, same thing here. So I got a basic playthrough of this game, but... As Anthony was saying, I really need to get two or three or four games into this until I can give this game a proper review. But at least from the start, it seems like a game that's going to get some gameplay, but it's going to need some serious gamers that are going to invest some serious time in it because the iconography is going to be something that's going to cause people to kind of like shudder back at least for the first game. But that being said, I can't wait to get this back to the table and come back with a full review. So that was Guilds of London. Anthony? All right. So 
The second game here, again, is one I brought home with me uh, from Gen Con. Uh, this one is from Gray Fox Games. This is one of the three games they released uh, at Gen Con this year, and that's Order of the Gilded Compass. So of the three games they released, I feel like this is the one that was talked about the least, but it's one of the ones that I was most interested in because of the unique way uh, that the game kind of plays. Out of the box, there are many different locations that you can put out. So there's a couple basic locations, a library, and a couple of others. But then the B and C locations are going to be different every game, depending on what you want to play as. Each of these locations has different rules that go with it. So when I first looked through the rule book, um, and I read through this and kind of did a solo play to kind of get a feel for how the game plays, when I looked through the rule book, uh, I... I initially thought, wow, there's a lot to this game. But then when I actually started to see, you know, what's involved in each of these different um, locations, I saw that you really only need to, need to know two or three of them of, of the unique B's and C's for each game. So you don't need to memorize all of them the first time you play it. Actually, it's pretty quick and easy to pick up. The goal of the game is you're going to have this handful of dice. You're going to roll them. You're going to allocate them to different locations based on certain patterns. So you can put a run of dice in one location. You could put all of the same in another location. You could put um, the lowest die number on another location. And each of these locations, depending on who has the best pool of dice there, and again, that what is best is determined by that location's rules, um, it's going to take away something. They're going to get uh, locations. They're going to get... Uh, uh, artifacts, objects, they're going to get, you know, the architects and diggers who go out and find these things. And so unlike a lot of other dice games that just feel super abstract at a certain point, I feel like it's going to be very interesting because you're kind of exploring and finding these different things and putting together these different sets. It's more of a tableau builder and set collection game than dice game. And the dice themselves can be mitigated in a lot of ways. So I'm excited to get this one to the table. It was kind of a passing curiosity at first, but now having looked through it and played it, uh, you know, just through the rules to learn it a little bit, I feel like it's going to be very interesting. So very excited to get Order of the Gilded Compass to the table in full with a nice group of people. Um, definitely listen back or check the blog for this one because I will have a review as soon as that happens. <laughs> I think it'll sure. be interesting. I'm excited to play. So it's not the typical what's best in life to crush your enemies, see them driven before you and hear the lamentation of their women? No, no, it's not Blood Rage. Ah, uh, damn it. <laughs> Conan! <laughs> All right. Well, jumping back to another light to medium weight Euro, another game that I have on my radar that I recently picked up at Gen Con, and I'm looking forward to getting this at a table, is Royals. And Royals is a set collection game in which you're taking cards of different colors. And in this case, there are four different colors that represent the four different areas in Europe. You have Spain, France, Germany, and Britain. And in order to claim control of the different royals and the different cities, you are playing those cards in order to play influence markers in those different areas. If you're the first one to place an influence marker, you get the victory point shit that goes down to your side. You place a marker with the person, and then you get to place a marker with the nobles on the left side. Now, what's really interesting about this is, is that you do have the duplicate nobles, I guess, based upon their status in each of these different countries. So you're trying to get a lot of markers out there so that you can influence similar types of nobles that are going to score you big victory points at the end of the game. So if you're able to control all of the nobles by a majority at the end, you're going to score big victory points. So scoring little victory points in the beginning, 
by getting there first, scoring majority control at the end of each round that scores you victory points, and then finally controlling the noble powers in this game. It's a light to medium weight Euro. It's easy to pick up. It's something that you can get people who are not in Euros into a Euro game because it has that kind of ticket to ride mechanic by picking up those set collection cards. Now, once your opponents get into those areas, you can also pick up intrigue cards. Now, here we go a little bit different from that ticket to ride mechanic. So once they're there, you play that intrigue card, you play the, the requisite number of cards, and you kind of bump them out. Now, they're still in the city, so that adds towards the final scoring. But nonetheless, you kind of jump in there and you jump in control and you score additional victory points. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. It's not really a complicated game, but it's a lot of fun. And this is a game that needs some really kind of take that, take a look at the board, kind of strategize what's the best play here with a little randomness as far as the cards are concerned, how those colors come out. Now, there is a variant where instead of having the three cards out, you can have four cards out. So it kind of adds to a little more of the structured play versus the random play. But Royals is a fun game, and it's something that once I get some solid plays in, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting that all these games that kind of uh, try to aim for that ticket to ride weight. Some of them work and some of them don't, but this definitely seems like one that could pull it off. Definitely. All right, what do you have for us? All right, so the next one here was actually one I picked up for my kids because you got to bring stuff home for the kids. But specifically, this is one I think Shut Up and Sit Down mentioned at their live podcast, and I didn't go to that podcast, but... At dinner that night, a couple of individuals who did go mentioned this game in passing. And it sounded a lot like Kerplunk, but with goofy German chickens. So I was very intrigued. And so we headed over to the Haba booth and I picked up a copy of Go Cuckoo. The goal of the game is you have this tin full of sticks, which are colored on both ends. You pull the sticks out and when they match, you get to place one of the sticks down. Sometimes you can place multiple sticks down. And you're trying to basically build a nest by placing these sticks over the the open space of the can. When you do that, you can place an egg in there from your pool of eggs, and you're trying to get rid of your pool of eggs. I'm not very good at this. Uh, <laughs> I've played it a couple times with my son, and he's reaching that age. He's you know he's just turned five this summer, and he's reaching that age where these dexterity games he can legitimately beat me i don't have to actually throw the game because i'm not very good at this kind of stuff it's still fun but rhino hero he's beaten me at several times even rampage you know he, he gave me a good run for my money on that one he's quite good he's got the soft hands you can get the egg in there and it stays put my big fumbling fingers every time i put an egg down i knock everything over and they fall out so this is in the acquisition disorder just because uh, i bought it on a lark because it sounded kind of silly and now i actually want to get good at it I'm tired of getting beat by a five-year-old. So it's a very interesting one. And I definitely look forward to getting to play it a little bit more and to dragging the rest of the family in. So far, just me and my son have played it a couple times. All right, so that's Go Cuckoo from Haba Games. Chris, what about you? Well, I have a game that I know very little about, but it came out on Gen Con. So I was really excited about that, as everyone was. And probably if there was a big surprise to the show or a big announcement to the show, it was Rising Sun, the new game from Eric Lang. Now, this is another cool mini or not game, so you're going to see amazing miniatures. And once again, go bet, look, take a look at the Facebook page because you're going to get some pictures there. Now, there isn't any information about this game other than Rising Sun is a spiritual successor to Blood Rage. 
And by that, they mean it's the same designer, same artist, same studio, same sculptor. Now, I think this is good for them to kind of connect the two games because Blood Rage has such an amazing pedigree to it and so much good you know, information and hype for it. But I'm still kind of questioning if this really is a quote-unquote spiritual successor because when they're talking about this game, the little information that's out there about it is that it has some sort of connection to diplomacy. Oh. Now, if you haven't played diplomacy before, diplomacy is all about negotiations and it is really cutthroat. So I'm not sure how this is going to play out with miniatures, but I really wanted a game very similar to Blood Rage. So I am tentatively excited about this and really want to find out more information about this, but it's kind of on the line for me. If it's if it really you know leans heavy towards diplomacy and kind of like cutthroat negotiations, I'm probably going to pass on it. But if it does lean towards the miniatures, blood rage, kind of strategic element to it, then I'm going to jump all over this. So that is Rising Sun, and like I said, it's Eric Lang and Kulmini or not, so you really don't have to say too much more about it. Yeah, I mean, I agree in that I don't want to play diplomacy in any form, but I also know that I will be backing this regardless <laughs> of what it's about. Okay. Uh, Cool mini or not, samurai miniatures? Come on. I know. Done. I know. Purchased. Done. Also, if anybody can take a mechanic like what fuels diplomacy and make it palatable for a mass audience, it's probably Eric Lang. Because I don't generally like the types of area control games that Blood Rage has descended from. But I love Blood Rage. So, okay. you know, I, I, I'll give the man some faith. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, he, he literally does everything, right? He's working on a Munchkin CCG right now, too, which seems to make zero sense, but I'm sure he'll find a way to make it work. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, he, He's yet to make a truly bad game, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Okay. All right, so the last one here for my acquisition disorder, uh, picked this up at Gen Con. I actually have not played it yet, but my gaming group has played it probably half a dozen times because I'm usually doing something else, um, and that's Codenames Pictures. So... It's Codenames. There's not much else to say. If you know Codenames, it's the same game, except you're doing it with pictures now instead of words, which basically means exact same rules, except now you can say pretty much whatever you want um, because there's no words that you're not allowed to say. Now, there are less cards on the table uh, is one major difference. It's a 4x5 instead of a 5x5 five five grid. Uh, but other than that, it's pretty much the same game. From what I've heard from my group, uh, it's about 50-50 whether they prefer this or prefer the Word version uh, originally. So I feel like that serves its purpose immediately. Like, you now have a game that half the people would prefer to play. They have not mixed it together yet. I have not suggested it, so we'll see how that goes. But I'm looking forward to playing it if I get a filler gap between other games uh, at my next game night. And uh, I think it'll be interesting. I think the pictures element... I'm going to enjoy more than the words element. So looking forward to giving this one a go. All right. Well, my last acquisition disorder is something that's pretty far out, but I'm really, really excited. One of the things that happens when you walk around Gen Con is you get to see some amazing things and especially things that you never thought you would see. And one of the things I never thought I would see would be a Cowboy Bebop board game. And that's coming from Jasco Games. Now, they're also releasing a Dragon Ball Z game which I'm a little concerned about because their Mega Man game, while beautiful looking, gameplay is not really there. So 
for a Cowboy Bebop game, I'm really looking forward to, or hoping for at least, strong, serious gameplay. And I'm really hoping that they pull something out here. Now, they are going to incorporate both of these games in their UFS game system. So there's you're talking about some fighting mechanic, two-player kind of game. But the board game versions of these games that are coming out are really something that's exciting for me. And especially for Cowboy Bebop, it's been so long. It's such a great anime series. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it to you. Even if you're not an anime fan, uh, I think you'll get a lot out of it. So the artwork, at least from the few pictures that they show, look outstanding. It's direct captures from the from the show and some updated artwork that seems to be new. So looking forward to it. Cowboy Bebop's amazing. Maybe we'll see a Samurai Champloo at some point. Guys, maybe? Hey, what do you think? Uh, but until then... That's my acquisition disorder, and that is our acquisition disorders for this episode. And now, At the Table with BGA. All right, so for our At the Table this week, we want to tell you about some great games that we recently got played and let you know if those games are a buy and you should run out just right now and pick those games up. Or if they're a play and if you see them hitting the table somewhere, jump in and grab a seat. Or if those games are a dodge, they're okay but really not worth your time. Or if those games are worth the dreaded burn and it's not really a game so much as maybe just a game experience and absolutely positively not worth your time. So, Anthony, what games have been hitting your table and how have they been rating by you? All right. So these are games that I brought home from Gen Con and actually did play. So, and I've played several times. Uh, the first one on the list is one we played at Gen Con um, in an event, actually. We sat down and played uh, with the designers, which was awesome, the Goonies Adventure card game. So this one comes from Albino Dragon Games, and it is exactly as it sounds. You are playing through uh, the Goonies, the story of the Goonies, and it is a cooperative game. It is fully, fully cooperative. There are no tricks here. Everybody shares actions. You all go at once It to the point that where it is definitely susceptible to alpha gaming um, if anybody in your group is going to do that. But the cool thing about it is that it's a relatively quick game. Uh, we played it at Gen Con in about 45 minutes with rules teaching. I've played it a couple more times here uh, at home, um, 30 to 45 minutes each time. So it's, it's definitely going to fall in that range. It's super quick. It doesn't feel like a very, very fast game, though. It doesn't feel like you're starting to have fun and then it's done it does from start to finish there's a nice flow to it and you do get a sense of the theme that goes with it so the game itself how it works is you have five different locations on the board and as the game proceeds these different obstacles are going to come out on those locations and the obstacles are represented by different symbols um there's keys there are music notes there are um various different things that are going to be there, lanterns, etc. And you are going to have a hand of cards, and you need to be able to play cards on those locations that match those symbols to remove the obstacles. That's really, that's like the disease mechanism in Pandemic. You really just don't want the obstacles to build up too much, because if you get five on any one location, you lose the game. Uh, the actual goal of the game, however, is to get gems, which are hidden under the the locations once you've cleared them, uh, and put those gems onto the ship tiles, which are on the side of the board. To unlock the ship tiles, 
you also need to have a certain number of cards that everybody's going to pool together and play um, to flip those over. So there are a lot of different things you have to do. You have to open up the space so you can get the gems. You have to clear the locations of the obstacles. Then you have to search through that location and find the gem. I say search through because there are three different tiles there, two of which are booby traps. So you can take a lot of actions and not find what you need. Um, when we played it at Gen Con, we actually found the gem on the first try at four of the five locations. And the designer assured us this that that was the easiest possible way you could play the game. Uh, it, it would never actually be that easy. The second time I played it, it was almost close to that easy. So I do think there's a tendency here for the game, if the draw comes out in a certain way, for it to be pretty easy. That said, I don't think the game is necessarily going to be easy. There's a lot of booby traps. The cards can string together very quickly. There's an entire other mechanic um, with an encounter deck where you have the Fratellis come out, and if too many of them come out, you lose the game that way as well. Um, you run out of cards in, in another deck, lose the game that way. So there's a lot of different things you have to kind of juggle. The really interesting thing is that each of the characters you have has special power, which definitely has an impact on the game. They'll have that one special power. They'll also have a once-a-game power that if you use it, you flip the card over and you can't use it anymore. And those are extremely important. I think actually to the point where it might impact who picks what when you play the game. Like certain characters probably need to be in that pool. I was very intrigued. I had a lot of fun with this game, even just playing it the first time. I was like, this is a fun one. I feel like this would be good bringing it home. It's it's a movie that I watched so many times as a child. So maybe I'm a little skewed in that direction, uh, being a fan of the Goonies. But I feel like you get a good sense of the movie. You get a good sense of the characters in this game. I think co-op and challenge-based really works for the theme because that's honestly, that's isn't that what that movie's about is overcoming all these challenges together. It's fun. And the fact that it's short and relatively accessible, like the rules themselves take five minutes to share with everybody, makes it a good game for families as well. So especially if you've watched the movie together. So for me, if you are a Goonies fan, I would say it's a buy. If you are not a Goonies fan or just have not seen the movie um, in a long time, uh, it's probably just a play, uh, just because there are so many great cooperative games out there. I don't know if this one necessarily stands out as one of the best cooperative games I've ever played, but thematically it really, really works. So that is the Goonies Adventure card game from Albino Dragon Games. We played this at Gen Con, and just for my first play, so I haven't played too much, and you got more plays than I did for this, but... What I would say is, if you are a Goonies fan, it's a play. If you're not, it's a dodge. Just because I think that the real fun in this game is in the flavor with the cards and the characters. And I think if you're not a fan of it, you're, you're really missing a lot out of the, in this game. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if maybe I like the movie that much. Um, <laughs> I think the fact that it's short definitely bumps it up a notch on both of those for me. Sure. It's If it was a longer game, I feel like that would almost hurt it because it would drag on a little bit. And, and the fact that it is full co-op where everybody's sharing their actions could be problematic. But sure. this quick of a game, this accessible, I, mean, I think it works pretty well. Yeah, it just didn't seem it didn't have a lot of complexity to it, even for a co-op. But it did have a lot of flavor. That's true. Yeah, I definitely can't argue with that. Sure. Well, one of the games that I got the, to the table that I was really excited for is Specters of Nevermore. Ooh. Yes, Nevermore. Now, we talked about this game actually last Gen Con when it came out from Smirk and Dagger Games, and we were all really excited about this game. It's a 
quick playing card game in which you are drafting cards. And the drafting is very unique because basically what you're going to be doing is at first you're going to be giving away the majority of your hand. And as each pass comes along, you're giving away less and less. So it's not just the typical pass one card. So you're trying to get sets because having the majority of a certain type of card is going to allow you to take that action. So you may be able to gain victory points or you may be able to to gain life or you may be able to attack other players or you may be able to gain a conspiracy of ravens and then do damage all around. Now, what's really fascinating and fun about this game is not just that sex collection aspect or the additional cards that give you special abilities in this game, but when you get knocked out of this game, you're not out at all. You just become the Raven. Now, the Raven is able to attack other players and then actually can come back as a player again, as a human again, and win the game. Now, that would be enough of a game in and of itself, and we all really enjoyed it and thought it was going to be one of the top games of 2015. We thought it was one of the top games of 2015. But what this expansion does is it adds player cards that give you unique player abilities, and if you really like the and if you like the Edgar Allan Poe motif and stories this expansion's absolutely positively for you the artwork is phenomenal you get these big place cards that give you a special ability in your human form and also a special ability in your raven form now it's not just a special ability but also the player card itself has one of poe's writings and special characters it gives you little details about what that character was about and as i said the artwork is amazing so if it was just for as a placeholder with the artwork and the character, it'd be worth a buy. But the fact that it gives you a unique player power in both forms, yeah, this is something that you have to pick up if you've already picked up Nevermore or if this type of gameplay sounds interesting to you. It's an absolute buy. Now, the game does have some randomness in it when you're picking up the cards that give you special abilities. And with this asymmetrical gameplay with the starting player powers, there's going to add some more randomness based upon which of these kind of player powers you get. Now, there is a drafting phase in the beginning, so you get to kind of choose which kind of player power you want to pick. So you can kind of like build a certain play structure, or if you already have a certain play structure in mind, as far as if you're going to go out and attack everybody, you want to pick a power that really has that. Or if you're more of a wait back and see what happens kind of person, you can pick one of the player powers that you know is more based upon the healing sense. So this expansion is cheap, it's quick, it's easy, it's really kind of fits perfectly into the game, and it's an absolute buy. All right, Anthony, what else has been hitting your table? Okay, so the second game uh, that I brought home that I thought would be fun with the kids is another one that I actually saw a lot of people carrying around the convention. Um, kind of probably a surprise for a lot of people uh, because it came out of nowhere a little bit, and that's Ice Cool. This is from Brain Games, and this is a dexterity game. And the reason it's so cool just conceptually is the the design and the engineering of it. You have a game that the board is these boxes that fit together interlockingly, but they all fit together into the game box. So you're not using 
you know, you're not building a board out of the floor or the table. You can put it all together. It clips together very nicely and neatly. And then you have this built-in ice school, get it, uh, built out of these five different boxes. So the goal of the game is you're flicking these little roly-poly penguin weeble wobbles around the board. And there's on each round, one player is going to be the chaser and the other ones are going to be the ones actually trying to pick up the fish moving through the school. Um, you all have ID cards. And if the chaser catches somebody, they take the ID card away from them. Every time you get a fish by going through the door with one of your fish on it, uh, you draw a card and there are cards with one, two or three fish on them. So it is very, it's not, I mean, it's not at all like, Hey, that's my fish, but it reminds me of it a little bit just because your penguins moving around, picking up fish in increments of one, two or three for the chaser who doesn't actually get to have fish on that turn. They get fish by grabbing those ID cards because at the end of the round, everybody with an ID card will draw an additional card. So if the chasers picked up two or three ID cards, they will draw two or three additional fish cards. Everybody's going to play the chaser once, and that's how many rounds the game has, and then you're done, and then you add up all your cards and see who the winner is. Very quick, very, very simple. Uh, the, the Weeble Wobble Penguin guys are very interesting because if you flick them just right, they will curve around things. They will spin a little bit. If you hit them straight on, they're actually a little bit too tall to go through the doors. So you need to get them to tilt just a little bit to squeeze through. And then you put a little spin on it as well. And you maybe get them to curve around and go through a second door. Because if you're able to get all three fish that you have on the board before anybody else, the round just ends. So there is a, a benefit to going through and kind of plowing through as quickly as possible, making these trick shots or even just to curve your way around that chaser so you don't lose your ID card. Very, very interesting. Uh, the second I pulled this out just to kind of play with it and look at it, my son was like a beeline across the house. He's like, what is that? I have to play right now. And he's pretty darn good at flicking those penguins around. So this is a fun one. I think it's going to be on the shelf for a little while. And I think it's going to be not only fun with the kids, but like for me and you know fellow gamers and adults, it's just enough skill involved that you want to keep trying to see if you can actually make it work. So the pun in the name aside, this was a lot of fun. Very surprising. Kind of came out of nowhere. Didn't hear anything about this before Gen Con. But I think it's going to be a very successful one. And just kudos for the very innovative design here. Because it's not something I've seen before with the board. Use of the board within the box like this. So yeah, in terms of rating, I would give this... If you're looking for something light dexterity or good with children um, of, of all ages, really, this is a strong buy. Yeah, I would agree with that. And beyond Scythe, this was one of the games that kind of gotten around the con a lot. And as simple and simplistic as the game seems to be, flicking those penguins is not easy, at least for adults. Because <laughs> you have this, you know, the idea like, I'm going to flick it through the door. And you're just like, nope, not going anywhere. Bounce right back off. You really, it takes a little kind of flourish to it to kind of get around those corners. Yeah, no kidding. It's easy enough for my son, five years old, but <laughs> then he's just laughing at me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, come on, Penguin, get in there, man, get in there. Like, nope, <laughs> nope, not at all. Not not going to happen. Like, ah, fine, be like that. So, yeah, that's it's a really fun, innovative game, and it's so nice to see that type of design to it. Now, one of the games that, are games that I'm going to talk about here is Stripe. One of the versions of the game came out in 2015 and the other in 2016. Now, these were Kickstarter games that I think 
I actually originally covered on Kicking the Habit. Now, Strife as a two-player game is quite interesting, and you've seen similar games like this before, where basically you are setting up a line of bases that you're trying to score, and you and your opponent are playing a card in order to have the maximum strength in order to win that location and score those victory points. Now, what's unique about this game is, first off, the artwork. The artwork is really solid, really innovative, beautiful artwork, large tarot-sized cards that really give you a feel for the theme here. Now, with Strife Legacy of the Eternals, you're looking at kind of traditional fantasy version kind of characters, really innovative, really dynamic characters with a lot of feel to them. Now, in the other version, which is the Shadows and Steam, we're looking at a steampunk version of the game. So first off, let me talk about the steampunk version. Now, you get a, a hand of cards, and the hand of cards that you get are identical to your opponent's hand of cards. So you're going to have the same character. So, for example, for the steampunk version, you're going to look at a sky pirate, or an illusionist, or a gambler, an alchemist, a plague doctor... A rifle mage, which honestly is the coolest character I've seen in the steampunk universe before. A uh, royal agent, an artificer, um, an inquisitor, a clockwork man, which is also very, very cool. And you are going to decide which card to play. And when you play that card, that card is going to have a certain strength to it and also going to have a special active ability. So you play the card, you look at your opponent's card, you see what the value is. You take a look at the action, you play out the action, but that's not it. You're also going to have a legacy pile, which is the discarded cards you played previously that's going to have a legacy or a secondary mechanic to it that's then going to come into play. So it's not just what you play, but what you've just previously played and how those things kind of click in together that's going to score you the most impressive effect possible. So while you might have the lowest number, based upon your effect and your discarded character's legacy effect, you might actually win that base and score those victory points. Now, that's pretty much the game in a nutshell, whether you play the fantasy version or the steampunk version. But in addition to that, there is also some additional mechanics that you can bring into the game. Now, I would say don't play those in the first round. I'm sorry. Don't play those in the first game because you want to get a sense of the game characters themselves because they're very dynamic. Now, once you get that into play, you can also add in events. Now, event cards are played for each round, and they kind of change up the gameplay. They're global effect cards. There's also artifacts that you can win, just like locations. And once you claim that card, they come into effect in different ways. It kind of win you a special power for the rest of that game. So the event cards are a lot of fun. I recommend playing those, but the artifact cards are really something that you want to add to the game right after your first try. So for Strife Legacy of the Eternals and Strife Shadow and Steam, I would say that these games are a solid play. Now, hold on a second, because there's something additional to this game that raises it to a buy. That would be the fact that you can play both of these games together. And by that I mean 
one opponent can have the Legacy of the Eternals, the fantasy version, and you can have the Strife version, Shadow and Steam. So you can play your unique characters that still have the same matching power. They can play their unique characters, and you can kind of pick out which locations you want to play and which artifacts and which game events, and you have to negotiate that a little bit. There is some you know, support in the rulebook, but nonetheless, there is kind of a quasi-advanced mode to this game where you can have different characters and I really love that idea that you're playing these asymmetrical universes, realms that kind of kind of clash with each other. So you don't just have the identical deck that the other opponent has. You have slightly a different deck that has different effects in the game. And that really is worthy of a buy. Now, Anthony, you got to play this at Gen Con. What did you think? Very interesting. I mean, it was um, you had the version we played. You know, we were playing the exact same cards. So... We, you know what the other player is going to play, you know what's available to them, but at the same time, it, you still have to kind of think around, all right, well, even if they have this, but maybe they'll play this, and then they have this guy over here in the legacy pile, but maybe they have this card that lets them swap these guys out. Like, you never quite know what's going to happen, and so you're thinking ahead, even though it's only a handful of cards that are out there, there's a lot of thoughts and planning and strategy that goes into, like, which cards you're going to play and when. So I really like that idea of it. Yeah, the only downside to this game, it's not really a game downside, is that it comes in tins. They're very small tins, but they're embossed. They do stack on top of each other. But as far as portability is concerned and you know putting on your shelf, it's very problematic. I'm not too sure why they went that way, but probably at some point this will get a deck box. And for me, I typically don't like to do that. I like to keep as much of the artwork as possible and as much as original packaging as possible, but the tins really don't travel. So that's the only kind of, you know, mark against it. But otherwise, it's a great two-player game. All right, Anthony, your turn. All righty. The next game that I want to talk about is actually not available yet unless you backed it on Kickstarter. We picked this one up at Gen Con from NSKN Games, and it is not yet in distribution in the United States. So unless you backed it, you can't necessarily get it yet, but if you like it, you know, make sure you voice that because it will almost certainly get to the United States at some point in the next year or so. Uh, that game is in the name of Odin. So this is uh, a Viking game, obviously. Uh, yet another one in the long stream of Viking games hitting the market of late. And the the whole idea of the game is you'll be playing these various cards that each have two symbols on them. The top symbol is always going to relate to a type of Viking. Um, there are three types in the game. And the bottom symbol is going to relate to a different resource type. Uh, there's commerce, there's ships, and there is um, hero powers. So the goal of the game is to match up the symbols on these cards, which you'll play during your turn, to various spots on the board. And the board has areas where you can recruit ships to your personal player board, you can recruit a hero to your personal player board. You can purchase buildings, build those and, you know, put them on your personal player board. And they offer special advantages and boosts and extra things you can do, discounts, etc. And then you can buy or recruit, I should say, uh, miniatures. And these are the Viking warriors, traders, and sailors. They all have swords and shields, so they're probably all warriors, but they're Vikings. So, you know, even the warriors have to have a day job. The... The goal of those warriors is then to go on quests and complete these different objectives. And those cards are going to be 
laid out on the board in one of three rows. The top row, you only need to be one space away. The second row, two spaces, and you get a bonus point. And the third space, three spaces and two bonus points. And really all you need to do to complete these quests is to have the Vikings in your pool that they indicate. So each of these cards will be a location. It'll have a number of different symbols on it. You just need to be able to match that. You can match it with a combination of the actual Viking warriors with the miniatures on your board and other symbols that might appear on the buildings you purchased, on your ships, and on your hero. You have to have a hero to go on a quest. You have to have a ship to go on a quest uh, to reach those different distances. So you pretty much need to have all these things together to go on these quests. There are a limited number of quests as well. The game ends when they're all gone, so it's important to get grab as many of them as you can uh, in terms of a share of the total. played with four people the last time I played it, and I think there was 12 total available. So if you broke it down evenly, everybody would get three. If somebody got four, they immediately have an advantage. You can see how that kind of spiral out of, the, out of uh, control pretty quickly if you're not actually going on quests. So the game itself, very quick, very straightforward, pretty relatively simple to teach. Everything's there on the board. The production value is fantastic. The artwork is amazing. The heroes themselves especially look really, really good. The board is this great production, all these wonderful things on it. The only interesting thing about this game is that the miniatures and really the board in general, it feels a little overproduced because breaking down the mechanics to their core, it's really just a card game. And the miniatures could have been represented by cubes. Now, I'm not going to complain that they went out of the way and upgraded those cubes to miniatures. Um, and again, this is the Kickstarter version, too. So there might be you know some variance there with the final production version once it comes to the United States. But there's so much going on here. There's so many beautiful things. And as you're playing, you're like, this is actually a very simple game. So when we first set it up, everybody's thinking this is a big, heavy Euro based on the size of the board and the number of components and all these different types of cards. It's really not. It takes about an hour. Very straightforward. Um, definitely in that medium, lighter medium weight category. Uh, all that said, though, really, really enjoyable. Had a lot of fun with this game. I've played it several times now just because it is so quick and easy to get into. Uh, and you're going to have a different time every single time out because... You only place a certain number of those quest cards, so you're going to see different ones every time. The heroes don't cycle through, so you're going to see different heroes who all have different powers. The buildings, on average, you're only going to be able to build two or three of them, probably, because the cost goes up as the game goes on. Uh, so you're going to have a different combination of bonuses and powers that affect how you buy things. The game itself is very tight in terms of scoring, too. Uh, the track only goes up to 50 and i think it'd be pretty unlikely to get that high in like a four or five player game very very interesting i feel like this game uh if you just looked at the box you probably wouldn't have a good sense of what it's about mechanically speaking but as a game itself um a lot of fun and i think it's very entertaining and i'm, I'm definitely hope to see it hit the u.s shores in the very near future because i think it's something that um will be very enjoyable. All right, so that's in the name of Odin. And if if it is available for you to purchase, I would give it a buy. At this point, your only real way to play it, depending on where you are, if you're in Europe, it's probably going to be in distribution for you at some point, and you can pick it up. If you're in the United States or Canada, North America in general, hopefully one of your friends kickstarted it. And there's probably copies floating around out there somewhere. This was on Kickstarter. There are games out there, but buying it from your local 
gaming store or online is not necessarily possible right now, unless you go to the one of the ones that import stuff. So keep an eye out for this one. Hopefully it hits the shores pretty soon. NSKN's other big game from last year, Simurg, did hit distribution here and is available pretty widely now. So I imagine this will happen at some point or another. Well, it's good to hear that's a solid buy then, huh? Yeah. No, it looked really good. And it's mm-hmm. I was very interested in you know giving it a go. It's one of those games that you don't really know what you're going to get, especially because once I started playing it, I'm like, this is not at all what I expected. So, But I was very pleasantly surprised. And now I have a fourth Viking game on the shelf. So <laughs> they keep coming. Uh, one more Viking and you can start a tea party. I'm just saying. I'm getting there. Yeah, it's going to need a whole <laughs> level of shelf here soon. Well, if you get those four or five Vikings together, Anthony, you can bring them out to the World's Fair 1893. Now, this is a light to medium weight euro, which tends to be kind of our thing. And basically the idea of this is you are trying to put your influence in different areas of the World Fair. So there's a lot of great things going on here. And what's the most exciting thing about this game is the interesting look of the game because you have these this great wheel that kind of sets up in the middle of the board and then you have all of the different areas of interest in the World Fair kind of surrounding it. And in fact, it does take elements from that World Fair from 1893. So you're seeing cards that have interesting facts and figures and scientists of that era on the cards, but you're also getting to get a sense of what that fair must have looked like and felt like. What you're doing is playing influence cubes in those different areas based upon the cards that you play. Now, how do you pick up cards? Well, by having the majority by the end of the round. So as the giant kind of wheel token moves around the board, it finally reaches its final destination, and then you score the areas. So you're dropping off these little influence cards. If you have that majority, you pick up the cards in that area, and once those cards are picked up, the area is reset with additional cards. Now, what you really want to do is pick up cards that allow you to put more influence, but yet at the same time, by having sets of certain color cards, you're going to be able to pick up tokens. So then it becomes a set collection game and not just an area control game. And finally, there you will be able to pick up certain kind of cards that will be able to score you victory points, just straight up victory points. You can pick up four for first place and two for second place. This is a fun Euro game that you can actually get your family to play just by the looks of it, just by the easy gameplay of it, And by the fact that the cards offer some unique flavor text and pictures from that era, it's really going to engage a large number of gamers and yet have enough strategy that you can actually pull in your, you know, light to medium to even a heavyweight gamer to kind of have some fun at the table, moving those influence cubes around, trying to pick up the the right sets at the right time and picking up those final set collections that's going to score you victory points. So for World Fair 1893, this game is a buy. It's a, like I said, a light to medium weight Euro that you're going to have fun with. It's colorful, it's dynamic, it's interesting, and it's something that you'll probably see around the game table more and more these days. All right, Anthony, what's your final game? All right, so... so Sorry in advance, everybody, too. Obviously, after a convention, we've played a lot of stuff. So we're talking about the stuff we like the most. So 
you got to buy a lot of games. Uh, <laughs> have fun with that. <laughs> so the last game here I'm going to talk about, which, you know, no spoilers, but I, it's pretty good, is the Castles of Burgundy card game. Uh, this is the card version of the classic Stefan Feld uh, Euro, the Castles of Burgundy. And it comes in a very tiny little tuck box. It's only about 15 bucks. So you'd think it's a small game with a small footprint, right? You'd be wrong. It actually takes up, I think, more space on the table than the Castles of Burgundy, which I find interesting considering it's supposed to be scaling the game down. In terms of mechanics, it utilizes almost all the same ideas. Uh, it replicates dice through cards. So you have six dice cards, which will form your tableau um, that you'll be purchasing cards from. One, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and the different rows. And then you'll be randomly placing cards in those depending on how many players there are. And then you will have a small hand of cards for each round. There are five rounds. And you will flip two at a time. They'll have dice on them, and those numbers will indicate what you can do. Um, the same as Castles of Burgundy. There are worker cards, which can increase or decrease the value of your cards, your dice cards. There is silver, which you can use for extra actions if you collect enough of it. Uh, and there are uh, several other things that are very similar to Castles of Burgundy. There are goods cards that you will get when you ship, and then you can sell them. And then there are animals as well that you'll be collecting through the purchase of different animal type cards. So the game itself, once you, especially when you read through the rules, like you'll get halfway through the rules and you're like, how exactly is this different from the Castles of Burgundy? It is very different once you get to the scoring aspects of it. So instead of scoring as you go and getting all these different things that kind of mount up on each other and reaching those super high scores that you tend to reach, what you have is a game uh, that relies on set collection. So for each of the th sets of three of the same type of uh, card that you get, so if you have three buildings or three mines or three castles, you'll get a certain number of points, and those will be printed on the cards. There are also bonus cards, so the first person to get a set of castles will get that extra point. Um, the first person to get one of at least one of all seven types of cards will get a, you know an additional bonus depending on how many players there are. The um, other ways you can get points, if you ship goods, those are worth points. There are certain actions you can take that will get you points directly into your pool. You can trade your workers and your silver back in for points, for example. So it all adds up pretty quickly. Uh, but at the same time, your score is going to be much, much lower um, than you might expect if you've played Castles of Burgundy before. The averages I've been seeing are in the mid-30s, low 40s at the very high end. And with lower player counts, uh, maybe even less, because there aren't as many cards to draw from, it's very, very interesting. I like it a lot. The only problem I have with this game right now is that it takes up so much space. So if you have four people playing, you need a pretty good-sized table, because your tableau, as you build all this out, it's going to get pretty big. Think Seven Wonders with tiny cards plus this pool to buy from. So you're, you're looking at a decent amount of space needed just to have room for all your cards as you bring them in. But that aside, you know, when you're looking at a game like this for 15 bucks and you could buy it online for maybe 12, you get a lot of game here. And it's on par, you know, at least in terms of the overall experience with Castles of Burgundy. It's not as heavy. It's, you know, not as brain burning and there's not as much depth to it as that game, but it's not supposed to be. It's a card game. So it works really well for that reason.
Um, also has an official solo variant, which is both very good and very hard. Um, have yet to beat it, actually. So that's an interesting addition to the game that the original doesn't have as well. So I would give this an easy buy. It's so inexpensive that there's no reason not to pick it up if you're a fan of Stefan Feld or of the Castles of Burgundy specifically. It's a game worth giving a go at this price point. Yes, I was excited about Castles of Burgundy, the card game, and it was the first booth I ran over to, and they weren't selling any copies. And then I saw a copy, and I'm like, you're going to hold this for me. And they're like, we're not selling copies. So uh, very jealous about that, that you picked that up, really want to pick that up. And there was talk about Feld bringing out some new games this year. So maybe we'll hear something new from Essen. But right now, I really want Castles of Burgundy, the card game. So yeah, I'm going to pick that up. So speaking of our little Euro section here, I want to talk a game that is on the heavier version. So we've talked about some light to medium weight Euros. Let's talk about a heavy Euro. So I want to talk about Small City. Now, you may know this designer from his numerous expansions for Age of Steam. So right there, you got a great pedigree. And with Small City, which came out last year in 2015... This is a game that has some really interesting mechanics. And basically, the idea here is that you are, in fact, building up a small city. So you start off with town with the town hall in the middle of a player board that you're going to be building out from. And in addition to that, you're going to be building residence and industry and commercial areas. So this game has some really serious crunchiness to it. But basically, the idea is that you want to do two main things. First off, you want to build your city that incorporates all of these different elements. Residents will score you victory points, which are essential in this game, because the residents are going to be the majority of your scoring here, with the exception of a final bonus card that you will be able to choose. Now... In order to build those residents to a large portion of your community, you have to build commercial buildings. So there's a lot of prerequisites to the building in this game. So you're building those commercial buildings that are going to need materials in order to build those buildings. How do you get those materials? You have to build industrial buildings. Now, this is the tricky part of the game. And remember I said there's two parts of this game? Well, as you build industry up and you produce products it's going to produce pollution now pollution plays a big part in this game because as your pollution level rises if you happen to have the most pollution of any of the other players in this game you're going to have to kill off citizens because the pollution is so bad and in final scoring your level of pollution is minus from your victory points So as the game goes on, you're like, I'm doing great, 20, 30, 40, 50 points, and now the pollution kicks in and brings me all the way back down. Well, not to worry, there's some ways to mitigate that. You can build parks. Parks will actually keep the pollution at a low level and minus what you score that round. You can also send your citizens to other players' areas and take over their industry and some of their special effect buildings that scores you money and scores you special materials. So send your citizens out there, it's great, but unfortunately if the pollution's bad in those areas, you will lose your citizens 
and they'll die and take up a spot on another player's board. But nonetheless, pollution is a big part, so you have to watch your industry, and also the citizens and tourists in your town also cause pollution. So the board that you have yourself is going to be very Tetris-like as far as trying to fit everything in based upon those special conditions because things have to match up perfectly in order to build certain upgrades of different buildings. If you didn't manage that correctly, you're not going to be able to build a certain industry or a certain residence, and obviously residents need to stay away from industrial. So you really have to plan those things out very, very, very tightly. Now, in addition to your player board, there's also going to be a board in the middle of the table. Now, this is where the scoring takes place, but also is where you'll be able to gain special abilities like picking up additional resources, building buildings for free, getting money and victory points, and getting new citizens onto your board. Because you'll have a certain supply of meeples in the beginning, they have to go to your town hall as new citizens, then they have to go to a residence, and then they can go out and do special effects for you. Now, what's really unique and interesting about this game is at the beginning of each round, you will take your player token and pick one of these professionals that take part in the city and will allow you a special ability right from the start. So the mayor, for example, plays a special role because that's the first player marker. But when you take that and you are able to select first, the other players are able to place this little mayor meeple to block off certain building spots on your board. So there's a benefit and yet a takeaway from it. There's also professionals that will expand your city, cause certain buildings to cost less. It's just a really crunchy game that is kind of easy, actually. In fact, as far as the actions that you're taking, you build simultaneously, you score simultaneously, but if you're not keeping track of your Tetris-like little city and placing buildings in the right spot, it's you're going to have a bad time. So as far as small city is concerned, I'm going to suggest this game is a play. And just because some of those small rules are very fiddly, that it might keep it off the table. But this game has almost seemingly infinite replayability, not just with the game itself, but with also its expansions. If you're looking for a real crunchy suburban building game and suburbia is just too light for you, then I highly recommend Small City. I'm coming away with more stuff I got to pick up. Yeah, I would I would say that this kind of fits in the same weight as Food Chain Magnet as far as the look and the feel of the game. Okay, so suburbia if it was Food Chain Magnet. Yes, I, I think that's a, a, good, a good tagline for it. All right. Now, yep, definitely got to buy that. <laughs> All right. Is that the last one? Yeah. Okay. All right, so that's everything that's been hitting our table for this episode. Now on to our feature review. And now BGA's feature review. So for our feature Gen Con review, we're going to give you the best of our show our review of Palooza, the games that we really felt stood out in the convention and the games that we really think that you should pick up and play because they really they really show off what's best about gaming for 2016. All right, Anthony, what is one of your games that is best in show? Okay, so the first game I wanted to talk about is one that uh, I only found out about it like a week before Gen Con. 
and became kind of one of the hot discussion topics of Gen Con, but also afterwards. I've had a lot of people ask me about this game, and that's Captain Sonar. This was from Matagote, I believe, and so it was sold at the Asmodee booth. Uh, and it is a submarine simulation, let's call it that. Um, each team consists of one to four players, but really you should have three or four because uh, one or two just sounds crazy. You're going to be playing different roles on a submarine. They include the captain, the first mate, the radio operator, and you have the engineer. And each of them has something specific they have to do. They came, the game can be played either in real time, which is how we've played it, or it can be played turn-based. I have not actually played it turn-based, so I can't speak to that. But the when when it comes to a convention and exploring and experiencing new things, this is the kind of game I want to find. Something unique, something different, something that I probably won't be able to play with my group uh, back here in Pittsburgh uh, just because of a variety of factors. Not the least of which is you really kind of need a quiet space. And we generally play in, in a coffee shop. So I don't think this would work well in a coffee shop. There's way too much ambient noise. Um, at a convention, it's the perfect opportunity. It was easy to find people to play. It was easy to find someone to teach it. And it was a lot of fun. So Captain Sonar, was it stuck out as, I think, probably the most interesting non-traditional game of the show and probably the one of the better real-time games I've ever played. Again, can't speak to the turn-based mode. I've heard it's similar in length and a little friendlier to fewer players playing, which I think I mentioned last episode, that was one of the reasons I was interested in it. So I would like to try that as well. But just having done that, I think Captain Sonar was definitely a standout this year. Yeah, it was interesting how tense that game was. And to see basically a updated board game hobbyist version of Battleship. So, yeah, that was, a lot, that was a lot of fun and really interesting. The game that I really want to talk about is something that Anthony and I got to play, and that is Jacques. This is another smirk and dagger game that we both really enjoyed. And for us, being, I would say, more along the lines a, of Eurogamers, we're always look on the lookout for a game that we can play that feels like a solid game for a party type of environment, but also engages a large number of people. And Jacques definitely does that. So in Jacques, what you're doing is there's been a murder. And in fact, pretty much everyone is involved and kind of guilty of this murder. But the inspector is trying to figure out who amongst all these people is the murderer. So what you're trying to do is trying to not get stuck with hard evidence. So on your turn, whether or not you are the inspector, you are going to try to play cards to move evidence around so that you don't get implicated in the murder. So in the at the end of the game, there is basically going to be one loser and the rest of the people kind of skirt out free and are the winners of this game. The player that's the inspector is going to play a card that's based upon what their investigation is going to be looking at. And now it could be motive, it could be opportunity, or it could be the weapon. So these three cards are going to be moving around based upon what players play as far as moving the evidence back and forth before someone plays a jacuse. And then that evidence, based upon what the inspector is investigating, becomes hard evidence. So the inspector could be investigating just one of those things, or in fact, all three of those things. 
So you have to think a little bit strategically as far as how much of a danger is it right now to play the inspector in such a way that he's just investigating one thing in comparison to three things. Or maybe I've noticed that the other players have already played their past left cards. So maybe I want to play something different in order to be able to move the evidence. So you really have to stay engaged in this game in order not to end up with the hard evidence. In addition, your own player sheet is going to have a couple of, how would you say it, um, areas where you can't be implicated. So there's a weapon, an opportunity, and a motive that's not going to stick to your character. So you don't have to worry about that kind of hitting you. But nonetheless, it's a game that ramps up very quickly as you see the evidence landing on a certain player and that a player about to be implicated based upon having a motive, an opportunity, and a weapon in their hard evidence area or having five different pieces of evidence that are hard against them. So at first, it's just kind of passing around and kind of enjoying the little strategy tactics. And at the end, it's getting really cutthroat as you're trying to really make sure that inspector focuses on that one person and takes them to jail. So that is Jacuse. It's a fun game, and it really engages the gamer side of a party game. Yeah, this one was a lot of fun, and I felt like, uh, you know, some of the more strategic elements that were added definitely helped make the game what it is. Definitely. We really enjoyed that. All right, Anthony, what do you got for us? Okay, so another game I got to play at uh, Gen Con, specifically went out of my way to play at Gen Con, because I wasn't sure I'd be able to play it otherwise, was The Others, Seven Sins. This is the newest Cool Mini or Not uh, Kickstarter release. Uh, They kickstarted it about 11 months ago. And it's just now shipping to everybody. And they had copies for sale at Gen Con. Uh, and then, so they also have dem- demos where they're teaching people how to play. I did not back this game, and I probably still won't pick it up. Just full transparency, the, the theme itself is just a little bit too much, I think. I have small children, and it's just not a kind of game I really want on my shelf for thematic reasons alone. But I did want to play it because the it's an Eric Lane game, first off. So you know that it's going to be interesting. If nothing else, it's going to have a unique take on a familiar mechanic. But at the same time, it's that one versus all mechanic. And I feel like at a convention, that's a great time to do that because someone demoing the game is going to be able to play that DM role pretty well. So the game plays as you have the DM who's playing one of the seven sins and the players uh, each playing one of these different characters who is who are trying to accomplish a certain goal. So as the game goes through, the the DM's going to be playing certain cards at certain ty- you know certain levels uh, throughout the game. There's three different stages depending on you know goals that you've achieved as a group. So the first stage it was getting a certain number of these tokens off the board. The second stage was killing a certain number of types of enemies off the board, and the enemies come back constantly. So uh, clearing the board doesn't really do any good because they're going to come back, except in those certain areas. And then the third was defeating this this sin, this final, you know, big baddie that came onto the board. We did not win, or we were not able to defeat them. And he gave us kind of a full rundown of why we failed at the end of the game, um, which was interesting because it is a game where you really do have to work together. And we were a little too spread out. The There are a lot of benefits to being close to one another. There are a lot of different ways that you can influence how your characters play too. So 
a lot of people like to compare this to Zombicide. It looks a lot like Zombicide. You have these tiles that form the map. You have these miniatures running around the board, attacking things. You have monsters popping up. But it really isn't very much like Zombicide at all. It's a lot more like a, a Descent or something along those lines. But even that's not even really the right comparison. And there's a couple of reasons why. First off, playing the Sin seems kind of fun. Most of these games, the DM is not as much fun because you're really just running the game for everybody else. Uh, the Sin has its own deck of cards. They get a certain number of actions each round independent of the players, and they can use those actions whenever they want. So they could decide, I'm going to do all four of my actions right now. Or they could decide, I'm going to let you guys go around and around and around, use up all of your actions, and then I'm going to do all of mine at the end. So that's a very interesting component of the game. The other part of it, too, that I found very interesting was the way in which you complete each objective is going to influence the next one. So if you complete the second objective, the third one starts immediately. And whatever position you're in at that time is where you're at to start that next one, which in our case led to a loss. So it's very unique in a lot of those ways. Each of the different sins comes with multiple scenarios you can play through. And then I think the base box only has two of the sins, and then the other five are expansions. Um, if you were lucky enough to kickstart it, you get all seven of those just with your backing level. Um, if you were not, those expansions are going to be extra that you'll have to purchase separately. And they're coming out here over the course of the next few months. Like any Eric Lane game, I was very impressed with how he took something that generally doesn't work that well, the whole DM mechanic, um, which really pulls one player out of the game. It's not as much entertaining. You know, it's not as entertaining as it could be. And he made it interesting and unique and engaging. Uh, the game was fairly tight. We finished in like an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes with teaching. And I can see there's just so many different ways you could play this from both the DM perspective, but also from the team perspective. And there's a lot of different teams that come into play. I really liked it quite a bit, actually. And I feel like of these types of games, um, with the exception of a couple very thematic games like Imperial Assault, this is probably one of my, you know, higher up uh, one versus all games. I think it's really well designed. It really is a shame, for me at least, that the theme is so mature. Um, and there's definitely a place for this type of game in the market. Don't get me wrong. I think a lot of people enjoy this a lot. And there's no reason, you know, people can't play this game and can't enjoy it. I just don't think it's the right fit for me um, and, you know, my situation. I just don't think it would ever hit the table. Um, but as a game, very impressed. Uh, and if it is the type of theme that you know you could get to the table, I would definitely recommend going out and, you know, finding a group or tracking down a copy. All right. Well, going from <laughs> the others to a small and yet quite reliable filler game that we all love, Love Letter. Now, at this Gen Con... Love Letter came out yet again, so Drew will be really happy to know that there was yet another version of Love Letter, but in fact, it was the original Love Letter, but in this case, Love Letter Premium Edition. So what you're going to get with this pack is, first off, a beautiful box that has a magnetic kind of lid to it. You're going to get heart tokens or affection tokens, as they're called. You're going to get tarot-sized Love Letter cards, which are beautiful. They're big. The artwork really stands out. They're nice to hold. It makes it easier to read the text in comparison to the original love letter. And it's also going to come with its own sleeves, these beautiful tarot card sleeves that have the love letter design on the back. So you don't have to worry about that at all. It also comes with 
um, player aids for the game. And in particular, the player aids are interesting because they're two-sided. Now, I haven't mentioned this yet, but the Premium Edition actually plays up to eight players. Now, it plays up to eight players because it has new and additional player cards that are added into this game. Now, when I first heard this, I was really worried about this because anything additional that's added into the game of Let of Letter, you know, kind of concerns me because Love Letter is such a straightforward, wonderfully easy kind of gateway game because you're basically holding one card in your hand the entire game and on your turn you pick up a second card you play one of the cards you do its effect and you move on so the idea of adding more roles into this game really did worry me but i'm happy to say that after playing this game multiple multiple times it plays wonderfully now what you're really interested in is what are the different roles to this game now there are new cards that match the same number so you're going to have more guard cards now the they don't do anything different than the original guard with the exception of new artwork but they will be added into the game so if you play with five players all the way up to eight you're going to throw all of the cards into the deck so the game's going to play a little bit longer but honestly i didn't really feel that the game you know overstayed its welcome so the guard card just a standard guard card now, at the number two level, instead of just having the priest, you're going to have also have the cardinal. Now, in this one, you're going to choose two players. They must trade hands and look at one of their hands. So instead of just looking at one card, there's a little more kind of gameplay element here. Now, instead of just having the baron, you're going to have the baroness. Choose one or two players, look at their hands. So once again, a stronger effect than just the original priest card. A number four card is going to be the Sycophant. And what you're going to be able to do is choose a player. And then the next player that plays a card that has an effect that targets a player, that player that's a Sycophant targeted is that player that's going to be hit with that effect. And that's pretty interesting, too, because, you know, sometimes when you're playing Love Letter and there's one or two cards left in the deck and there's a player that you know has the princess and just sitting back going, I know I'm going to win, so I'm just going to sit back here. The sycophant kind of really opens up some additional gameplay there, and I really like that. You also have the count. Now, this is a different kind of element here. So when the count is in your discard pile, it's going to add one to the number of the card you have in your hand at the end of the game. So let's say, for example, you had the priest at the end of the game, but you had two counts. So now instead of that just being a number two card, it's a number four. So it bumps it up a little bit. And that's going to come into play if you get that final kind of showdown. There's also the constable that when this card is in your discard pile and you, and you get knocked out, you're going to get an affection token. So even though you may have not won that round, you're actually going to get a winning token for that round. There's also the queen, which you're allowed to choose another player. And then you can secretly compare hands with that player and the player with the higher number is out. So instead of the Baron where the lower number is out, the Queen flips that around and the higher player is out. And then um, finally on the high side, you're going to be looking at the Bishop, which is the number 9 card. And what you're going to be able to do here is very much like the guard. You're going to choose a player and then guess their card in their hand. And if you're right, you're going to gain an affection token. Now, 
one of the interesting things is even though this is a nine and it's going to play as a nine in the game at the end, if you're in the final showdown, the princess, which is the eight, still wins the game. Now, I skipped over two cards because I think they really, you know, you have to look at them individually and, and deeper. Those are the zero cards. So not just the normal number cards, but the zero cards come into play. Now, one of the interesting cards is the assassin card. Now, you, remember, you may remember Citadel's game that actually has an assassin card that takes out players. Well, this is kind of similar, but it's not going to be a take that mechanic. It's actually going to be a card that you're going to have in your hand. So when somebody uses the guard effect on you and you have the assassin hand, they are then eliminated, which is really interesting. And finally, there's the jester card, which is also a zero card. And what you're going to do is choose another player. You give them the jester token, which is a yellow colored affection token. And if they win the round, you get a victory point, which is another affection token. So these cards add to the kind of already dynamic gameplay it didn't seem to slow it down, and the fact that you could play with more than four players was really interesting. And yet, at the same time, with this premium edition, you could just play with the four players. It has the regular standard card. So four players or five plus, this is a great addition to anyone's game, and I highly recommend picking this one up. Yeah, I didn't realize it had that much more stuff in it. You know, I might have grabbed a copy myself. That's pretty impressive. It's almost like an ultimate version of that game. Yeah, I was really kind of curious about this because you know there's so many versions of love letter they all play slightly different and anytime you see like you know you could play a game that usually plays from four now you could play up to eight you're like uh no that's never really a good thing and here it's actually it's pretty decent and uh got this to the table a lot of times and really everyone enjoyed it and uh it's worthy of having a second copy of love letter so that's high praise all right anthony what you got for us all right, so this next game is not yet out, and we got a chance to play the game uh, at Gen Con. Another benefit of going to the con um, is, and it's the newest one being released by Capstone Games in the United States uh, for, uh, right after Arkwright, which got a chance to play after Origins, and this is called Haspelnect. And it is the third game in the Cole series, which has been released in Europe for some time now, and they're just now bringing it to the U.S., and they're releasing it out of order because they want to release it kind of the lighter end up to the slightly more heavier end of the, those three games. So Haspelnect is the lighter of the three. Now, it's not necessarily a light game. I'd still consider it a midweight Euro, but it's not a heavy, heavy-duty game like Arkwright. Arkwright's probably the heaviest game I've played in years. This is more in line with a lot of the mid medium-weight Euros we've been playing lately. We played it in about an hour, a little less maybe, very quick. And the goal of the game is to uh, mine coal, basically. And you'll throughout the different rounds, you'll be taking different actions to recruit various resources from this pool. You can only have a certain number at any given time. And you'll use those resources to mine the coal, uh, to pay for food, to upgrade, to get new technologies from this tree that is part of the game. And those technologies will give you special abilities. They'll get you money, coins that you can use for various things as, as you kind of progress through the game. So every round at the end of the year, you're going to have to be able to pay a certain number of food and or coins in the three different rounds. So it is similar to Agricola in that way, but you're not going to get completely obliterated if you make a mistake. Um, it's pretty likely you'll end up getting a couple debt tokens, and they're not quite as damaging in the long run as a game like Agricola. But 
the main goal of the game is to mine the coal um, from above ground and then go below ground and remove the water and mine more coal. And while you do that, you need to have wood so you can put in new struts in your mine. You need to get certain tokens or uh, certain symbols that are going to match what's in the mine for scoring purposes. There's a lot of neat little things going on here. And again, it's not the heaviest Euro I've ever played, but it is a very interesting game that because of how quick it is, because of how fast it was to teach, and because of the different variety um, both in the randomness of the, the different types of workers that come out, but also in the tech tree in which you can choose different routes and pick up different abilities every time you play, it's going to have a lot of re replayability. So this is a very interesting game. I'm kind of excited to get a copy here in the next month or two when they start shipping it. And it's a series to keep an eye on because as a first game being released in this series, I'm definitely interested to see what the slightly heavier, you know, coal series games look like. Yeah, I really enjoyed this game. It was interesting how thematic it was as far as you can first have to dig for the coal and then you had to put up these beams in order to secure the coal mine. And because you're digging, now you're getting water. And if you're taking on water, eventually it's going to stop you from mining coal. So you have to get rid of the water now. So you have a limited number of workers and it, it's kind of interesting as far as what materials do you take you know, as far as kind of building up your action pool to start with, and then how does that play out later on, and then the special abilities of those different uh, tiles that you can kind of add to your area. It's really dynamic. As you said, it's not a heavy Euro game, but it does have the feel of a truly thematic and rich game, even though it plays pretty quickly and it's a pretty simple game. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to pick that up as well. All right, so the game that I want to talk about here is one of the new releases, and this is from Martin Wallace. This is Via Nebula. I'll start off with the fact that I played this with some of my heavy Euro game friends who really play those, you know, those 18 double X games. Now, this coming from Martin Wallace was kind of made it acceptable in their eyes. Now, if you don't know Martin Wallace, you don't know Brass or Age of Steam or Age of Industry or any number of great games that he produced in recent years, including a few acres of snow. And you should absolutely check those games out if you do like the heavier side of Eurogaming. Now, what this game is all about is very similar to his other games in which you are building routes in order to build buildings and gain access to materials. So very similar to his train games, but yet at the same time, this has artwork that's very similar to, I would say... Uh, Imperial Settlers, kind of on that cartoony size, but very nice artwork, very intricate, and very engaging for a, a wider audience. So what you're going to do is basically you're going to have two actions per turn. Now, some actions take one and some actions take two. So basically you can place a person out in a resource field that's going to spawn all those resources, give you victory points. But now you're stuck with those resources. Doesn't seem like a bad problem, right? But at the end of the game, every person you have in a resource field, you're going to take a negative point for those resources there. So you really want to make sure that you set up a network of trails so that you'll be able to ship those resources to build buildings. So speaking of building buildings, you can also put a crane token out there to a section where you can build buildings in which you want to draw those resources and then also, as I said earlier, you want to build these paths through these kind of foggy areas. So a regular foggy area takes one little chit. 
uh, an area that has all these branches and bush. That's going to take two two time markers or two actions for your round. That's basically your whole round. And then finally, you can move resources, which takes an action, and you could build a building, which takes an action. And once you build a building, you'll be able to gain a special power from that building. So you have these cards that are set up at the beginning of the game, and you also have cards in which you start with yourself. So basically, the game is not a rush to finish, because once you finish, that just marks the end of the, of the game, and then you score up your victory points. So as you build those different clearings, you'll score victory points because you're taking them off your board. The buildings score you victory points. Those resource areas score you victory points. You minus anything that you weren't able to convert and it's kind of stuck with you. And that's pretty much the game. It's a fun game. I really did enjoy this quite a bit. It really stood out for me. I wasn't too sure because Martin Wallace tends to be on the very heavy side, which I do enjoy, but with the right group of people. And yet the artwork seemed to be a completely different game. So for my heavy gamers, I would say try this game out because it will bring some more people into the heavy game market. And yet at the same time, it's just outstanding artwork. Don't worry about that. And for my lighter to medium weight friends in the Euro game area, I would say try this game out. At first, you're going to be a little perplexed by it as far as you're doing a lot of things that are not doing anything directly for you. But eventually, you'll catch up to the mechanic. And this is a good entry-level game for Wallace's heavier games that should be part of your game repertoire at some point. So that's Via Nebula. That's definitely a game you should be checking out. All right, Anthony, what's your final game? All right, so the last game we're talking about for me, I guess. The last game I'm talking about uh, in this episode is the one that I was probably most excited to pick up, and I did buy this game and bring it home with me, and I've played it the most since I got back. So this is, for me, the game of the show. Um, I know it's one that sold out very quickly, and that is Terraforming Mars from Stronghold Games. This is... It was kind of the perfect storm of things I'm interested in right now in games. It was about Mars. It's very heavily science-based. Um, it was card-driven resource management, and there was a pretty cool map involved. The The game itself is everything I expected it to be based on you know the previews that people have put up, and then even a little bit more. Um, whole concept of the game is that you are a corporation embarking on the terraforming of Mars as a planet. And that terraforming process takes several generations. It takes place over multiple, multiple rounds, and it varies the number of rounds depending on how many people are playing because there are these global um, goals that everybody's working towards. So for, before the game can end, we need to get oxygen up to 14%, which is like the minimum people can breathe outside and live comfortably. We need to get the temperature up to 8 degrees Celsius, from negative 30, which is where it starts. And we need to get nine oceans tiles out on the board. Every time you do any of these things, you move up on the score slash money tracker. Your score also happens to be your income uh, modifier every round, which is pretty cool. And then you uh, will also kind of move the game slightly closer towards the end. So everybody wants to do these things. They're good uh, for you to actually accomplish these goals. But the as soon as they're all done the game ends so that's you know once you've all completed those things there is no more engine building to be done so as a result kind of the sweet spot on player count is three to four because if you do a full five complement the game ends a little too quickly um throughout the game to do all this you're going to have cards and 
you'll start the game with a, a varying number of resources and money, depending on which corporation you play. You'll then purchase cards. And this is a very interesting aspect of this game, too, is you always have to buy the cards into your hand before you can play them to the table. Buying them into your hand always costs three per card. But there are some cards that, while good, are questionable whether it's worth spending that extra three on. Whereas other ones, it's a no-brainer. So you're always kind of balancing how much money to spend on cards to bring into your hand versus to kind of wait on them. Once they're in your hand, you know, you're going to be playing them out. Uh, there are three different types of cards. There are effects that you can kind of reactivate over and over again. There are automated cards that have a one-time effect, but then you leave up in front of you because they have certain symbols, tags on them that you can use for other effects. And then there are events, which are red, and you flip over face down when you've used them because they no longer have an impact on the game. All of these cards do so many different things. There are over 200 of them uh, in the deck. The deck is massive. And... Having played this game, you know, probably eight, nine times at this point, I have seen the same card several times, but I've in no way had the same tableau. You're going to be using these cards to impact the resources on your player mat, increasing things like steel, which you can use to, you know, play for building cards, uh, titanium for space cards, plants to plant greenery, and then uh, energy and heat, which will be used to increase uh, the temperature, as well as the mega credits, which you use to pay for everything. So there are a lot of resources you have to keep track of. They're constantly moving. There are cards that you have to keep track of. Your hand can get pretty massive. So actually managing all those cards can get very frustrating um, if you you know, forget all the things that are there. And then there are certain milestones and awards on the board as well that you can kind of commit to uh, early in the game or even midway through the game, depending on how many people have done that. There's a lot of stuff to keep track of, and yet it all feels very tight. It works very well together. And the fact that the designer is a scientist bleeds through this game in almost every way because you can see the science behind things like, you know, there are cards about, you know, asteroids hitting the planet and increasing heat or nuclear detonations being used to melt ice caps and put oceans in place. Um all these varying cards about like the temperatures at which microbes will grow in certain conditions. And while that might sound a little heavy, crunchy, science-based, they all work so well together that the impact, the effect of it is that it just feels like a very thematic game in which you're actually learning some things about what this would be like if we were actually going to go terraform Mars. The scale of it's really interesting, too, because you're playing over these various rounds, but those are generations. That's an entire generation of people. And so like a three-player game, you're going to probably play 10 generations, and that's how long it would take to actually complete this process to make it livable. Very, very interesting. I'm also very much in love with the solo variant of this game. One of the better implementations of a solo version in a multiplayer game that I've played in a long time. Probably going to record some stuff about this actually for YouTube discussing not only the game and the walkthrough of it, kind of do a little bit more detailed review, but also talk about that solo version because I like it so much. So yeah, for me, Terraforming Mars is probably my favorite game of Gen Con. Uh, but definitely been playing a lot of it and will continue to do so in the near future. Yeah, I picked this one up as well. I'm really looking forward to it. At first, it just kind of got lost in the many, many Mars games that were out there. But it really is, is starting to stand out. And I think it's something that's going to have some lasting value. Yeah, I almost overlooked it just because I already had my eyes set on um, the Martian story and the first Martian. Those, you know, the Portal games reskin of Robinson Crusoe and then the other one coming by a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, a third one? I don't know. <laughs> How many Mars games do I need? 
is Mars the new Vikings? Apparently, I guess so. And in, so, in Eurogaming, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have like four or five of these on the shelf soon too. But um, very very glad I picked it up because this might actually end up being the better of the three. I mean, I haven't played the other two yet, but I, I like this one that much. See, if Drew was here, he would say Vikings mash up with Mars, right? So Vikings go to Mars or something to conquer it or something. <laughs> Some kind of John Carter alternate universe. Yeah, that that could be a thing. That, that might be the next thing. So Eric Lang, if you're listening, and we know you are, get on that, man. Seriously, what are you doing? <laughs> Only releasing like three dozen games a week. So give you something to finally do. All right, so the final game that I want to talk about was a game that Anthony and I got to play at Gen Con is Star Trek Ascendancy. Now, this is yet another Star Trek game in their 50th anniversary kind of, you know, blowout. So another game that kind of got lost in the weeds a little bit, like we were just talking about the Mars game. Well, here you go. You're getting Star Trek probably in the closest form to a space exploration game that we've seen at least since Star Trek Fleet Captains. Now, what you're doing in this game is you're building up pretty much the galaxy. You're kind of exploring and settling. It's almost like a 4X game in a certain way. So the box base set is going to come with, of course, the Federation, the Klingons, and the Romulans. And you're going to have your home system in which you're starting on in which you're going to be able to build different fleets. And for every race, you are going to get a, for every species, you're going to get a special setup. So you'll have a special benefit, but also a weakness. Now, this is probably the first time I've ever seen this in a game like this. And I'm really enjoying that because it really plays into the thematic feel of Star Trek. So, for example, the Federation just can't go around conquering people. It's just not what they do. Um, with the expansion, with the expansions, you'll also be able to play the Ferengi and the Cardassians, which will also have a special benefit, which they they just kind of run over people. But yet at the same time, because they have that additional action, they also have to stay in orbit with a ship because they tend to be occupiers. So you get a bonus, you get a retraction at the same time, you get special fleets that have special abilities, and when you build up enough ships you can put them in that fleet and you get the special fleet token that gives you that special ability you could build up ships you could build up weapons you could do a lot of fun stuff as far as building up your well depending on which race you are your empire so the basic mechanic behind the game is you are building up production in order to build ships and build up production nodes that build you up more materials you're also building up research nodes that build you up special ability cards that you'll be able to get in the game. There's also cultural nodes, which are the victory points in this game. And when you reach five culture points, you win the game. So you still have to build production. You still have to build research up. But in the end, it's culture that's going to win you the game. So as you go through the game, building up weapons and shields and research, you're going to be exploring. So you're going to be taking flight down these kind of space lanes to new systems and each of these system disks has a planet that's going to tell you what what type of nodes you're going to be able to build there but before you can explore that system if it is an actual safe system and not a nebula or you know terrifying space cloud before you're able to get into that system you're going to flip over card you're going to get a classic scene from one of the different star trek series and you're going to have to play that card out Now, it could be something simple like, hey, you're welcome and you can kind of move into that system. 
or it could be something a little tricky where you have to do a certain dice roll, or it could be a crisis, which is going to totally mess you up and really mess up your play. Now, you can gain those culture tokens in a lot of different ways based upon your species that are playing out. So maybe you, if you're the Klingons, you want to attack a lot. If you're the Federation, you want to settle a lot. But the gameplay allows a lot of different ways to victory depending on which race you're playing. So the game is a lot of fun. It's interesting as far as how you move those space lanes to connect to different planetary systems. There is trade you could do with other players that help you build your production but also opens you up to attack. So a very thematic game, a very large game. You really need a lot of table space for this game and a very high-level price point for this game. So for three players, it's that $100 price point, but there'll be other races that you can pick later on. So you can kind of you know, specialize the gameplay based upon what Star Trek universe you want to play. So that is Star Trek Ascendancy. And that is our best of show from Gen Con 2016. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook. That has all of our outstanding Gen Con 2016 photos. Our Twitter account, which has all our tweets from that recent convention. Our Patreon account, which you can support our podcast so we can get some new and great episodes out to you. Our guild on Board Game Geek, where the discussion continues. And especially... Rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. The more ratings we get, the more great board gaming goodness we can get out to the community. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at one of our great Gen Con games in 2016 because that is what's best in life.